Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from academic discussions happening in our journal to interviews with filmmakers and artists and global perspectives on health and medicine from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and to the humanities because life happens at the intersections. This is Brandy Scalace, Editor-in-Chief of Medical Humanities Journal, and I'm here today talking to Gavin Francis. He's the author of four books now, True North, which is dealing with travels in the Arctic, Empire Antarctica, and also um, Adventures in Being Human. Finally, his fourth book, just coming out, is called Shapeshifters, and Gavin is also qualified in medicine in Edinburgh and does some teaching at the University of Edinburgh. Thank you for being with us, Gavin. Thanks for having me on. I believe I first reached out to you based on I was watching some social media conversations coming together about housing. And so I wonder if we might start there, because I think housing and health go together in so many ways. Mm. Yeah, I was commenting um, on a social media conversation, essentially pointing out a huge proportion of ill health, a huge burden of ill health among my own patients, is due to inadequacies in housing. And one of the most powerful things as a physician that I can do is essentially write a letter confirming with some degree of authority that somebody's housing situation is making them ill. And it struck me that it's not a particularly useful way of of utilising somebody with specialist medical training who's had to study medicine for 10-15 years essentially to confirm what's quite obvious to everybody when housing is inadequate. So that was the the kind of social media conversation about um, social justice, social housing. Mm -hmm. And you know here in the United States I've done some work on infant mortality and one of the key Reasons for infant mortality um, has to do with this, at least in the work that I've done in Cleveland, it has to do with the the stress over housing. So not just the dangers in the house itself, but also the danger of not knowing if you're going to have housing. So what kinds of what kinds of sicknesses or what kinds of problems are you seeing? Well, usually it's um, the extreme burden of mental health issues relating to precarious housing. So. For various reasons, people's housing situation might be related to the fact that they're on certain kinds of incapacity benefits or welfare benefits. Their housing situation might be related to the fact that they are in a relationship which is damaging to them, but if they split up from that relationship, they'd no longer be entitled to the housing. Um, I think it boils down to what kind of society we want to live in. You know, there's a kind of um, zeitgeist, sadly, with this age of austerity that we're starting to move towards an idea that certain people don't deserve some kind of subsidy in terms of the way that they're living their lifestyle from the state or from the taxpayer. Um, and it's really very, very distressing to me because I see the, the ramifications of that. And essentially, I think most of the people who hold that position don't really want to live in the kind of society where people are thrown out onto the street. But that's what's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think too, there's plenty of people who 
they like to the concept that somehow you're um, it's like the, the concept of a syntax that you're penalizing. But how do you enforce something like that without actually hurting the most vulnerable people in our society? Yeah, no, you can't. And so if you want to judge your society on how it treats its most vulnerable, as I think most of us, um, no matter how they vote on polling day, wish to think that, then um, we just have to accept that people who are in um, fortunate positions have to pay a bit more and um, we need to have a bit more of a redistributive uh, system to try and help the most vulnerable people in our society. So certainly that's my position as a as a doctor facing the kind of mental health problems that are caused by um, precarious housing, precarious um, um, income, declining uh, declining levels of employment, and so on. Yes, and I, you know, again, coming from the United States, we we don't have socialized medicine, and so the added burden also that you might not have access to care at all, in addition to these other problems, is something that I think is becoming more and more distressing. It's always been distressing, but I think it's it's becoming more and more obvious and more and more um, clear how this affects people's health their whole lives. So, you know, I know that you're not just speaking of something in the moment, but something that progresses over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the child health statistics for the United States are absolutely scandalous. And um, Mm -hmm. considering that the United States spends three times per head on healthcare than the UK does, but has outcomes so much poorer, is really quite terrifying. So um, I'd like to ask people who want to see more liberalisation and marketization of our health system to look at that kind of outcome, a tripling of costs with a reduction in um, in health outcomes for the general population. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's truly, um, it, it's interesting too, because of course it doesn't take much to take someone who might be middle-class and completely, um, you know, they, they might lose their home. They might lose medical bills are one of the key leading factors, not only of people's stress, but also of economic distress. So yes, it's, it's definitely, uh, we, we have a lot to look toward um, the English system, the way it's being done in the UK. And I, I hope to see changes here and not the reverse. Yeah, no, no, it's quite frightening. I ended up in a correspondence with somebody um, who I'll keep anonymous, but um, who essentially found themselves between insurers when they had an abnormal um, pap smear and ended up having to fly from the United States to the Far East in order to have colposcopy because it was too expensive to have it done in the United States. So that is truly terrifying state of affairs um, when somebody between health insurers can find themselves abandoned like that and have to fly to the other side of the world to get treatment. Yes, absolutely. Well, I wonder if, um, to, to change tack a little bit, I noted that your last two, bo- your first two books were travel books, and I'm a big fan of that, actually. But mm-hmm. um, your last two, Adventures in Being Human, and then the new one coming out, Shapeshifters, can you say a bit about how uh, your, you know, your, your career and your present, the present condition that we find ourselves in have like, shaped those books? Well, I began to be a writer um, essentially because I wanted to document and describe certain kinds of experiences that I had traveling and I was very interested in in trying to write a kind of book that I would most want to pick up in a bookshop and um, at the beginning that was the kind of book which 
fused history and culture and anthropology and travel. And so I wrote a book about the Arctic, the European Arctic, um, charting essentially Europe's discovery of its northern limits over the last couple of thousand years through a journey that I made myself. And then I wrote a book about being a base camp doctor in Antarctica for a year and a half. I worked at Halley Research Station for the British Antarctic Survey as their medical officer um, for a while, uh, living in a very, very pure, very elemental, very austere landscape, which was fundamentally isolated, you know, impossible to leave Mm -hmm. for 10 months of the year. And my life changed after that from being one with a great deal of travel to one where I was settled, I had a family, and I was working as a GP and general practitioner, and I realized that the kind of journeys I was making through my patients' lives every day, through their stories and through Mm -hmm. medical history and through the ideas of the body and how to manage them, were very, very similar to the kinds of mental journeys that I'd been making when I was a travel writer. And so I wrote um, Adventures in Human Being essentially to try to take the skills of a travel writer about mapping uh, culture and anthropology and history and contemporary encounters onto a narrative of a journey and using that to explore the body. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, so that book just went from head to toe but looking through different kinds of ideas of different parts of the body and not trying to be comprehensive, just trying to look into um, different ideas about the mind and the brain. There's one on psychiatry and ECT and one on neurosurgery uh, in the lungs, looking at different ideas about the breath, um, talking about the liver and um, uh, ancient European folklore and myths all the way down to the hip and, and Jacob and the angel in the Bible and when, when Jacob's hip is dislocated and what mm-hmm. that story might mean and what that means for people who have hip replacements now and so on. I I really enjoyed writing that book. It was um, a wonderful experience, really kind of almost um, leisurely experience. I didn't find it difficult um, to write, but there was something slightly missing in that the book didn't capture the... The, the dynamism of human life, the fact that it's always changing, that, you know, that dynamism is what ultimately medicine rests upon. You know, people go to see a doctor because they want a change in their life. They want to influence or invoke some kind of change. And so I hadn't really finished with that idea. I wanted to write another book about, about that dynamism, about transformation and how all medical encounters are seeking some kind of transformation. That's that's really interesting because I think you're right. And the, the, the being human is is literally living in change, you know, at all times. And in a lot of ways, health inaugurates story. Mm. Yeah. And what do we do in a clinical consultation? But but become very fine readers of each patient's story, trying to read between the lines of what they're saying to us, listen to what the patient doesn't say as well as what they say. And a lot of it is about pattern recognition, just like um, good art criticism is about pattern recognition, I think. And shapeshifters, that kind of that's what's taking this idea forward. I know that just came out, I think, yes? Yeah, that's right. It's just been out a month or two, um, just a month in the States and a couple of months in the UK. Yeah. That book essentially um, 
looks at four different perspectives on change. Um, there's the great way stations of life that um, many of us undergo, such as you know conception, birth, puberty, pregnancy, menopause, and then frailty and end of life. So it look, tries to look at those big way stations. But then it also looks at the kind of changes that come upon us in crisis, such as you know cancer, mental illness, um, severe injuries, fractures, amputation. It looks at that kind of change and how we can adapt and respond to it. Another kind of change it tries to look at are those that we impose and that we will upon the body. You know, you can choose to pump up your muscles uh, like a bodybuilder with steroids or without. You can get plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery. You know, I, I try to look into the, the seed of, of wishing change upon the body that, that results in anorexia, these kinds of ideas. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, well, the, and I think too, um, I, I, I know we spoke a little bit over email about the way you see, you know, for me as a writer, I feel that I'm always looking for a story and we're always sort of seeking after meaning. And I, I think we do that with our bodies too. I mean, um, the, the, presently people go online and they, they look for reasons for things to be happening. And do you find that, that your patients are often coming to you hoping that you'll help them tell that story? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, uh, coming to a medical consultation is one of the opportunities they have to be really carefully heard and really carefully listened to. And it's just unfortunate that so often we don't have the time that we need to be able to do that um, properly or ideally. But um, yeah, a huge amount of the the craft of medicine, I think, is in learning how to be a good listener and letting people unfold their story to you the way that is going to be most beneficial both to them and the way that's going to help you understand it. That's brilliant. Um, we just have a few minutes left. And so I thought I would just ask um, if you have any parting thoughts for us as someone who is both a writer and therefore deeply invested in the humanities and also a practitioner. Um, essentially, for me, they, they're kind of not mutually exclusive states of being or ways of, of approaching uh, knowledge, they're very complementary. You know, I find that as a, as a general practitioner, I'm very, very busy in the clinic. I have 10-minute appointments. I have very hectic days. Um, and I often feel the need to balance that with days of, of silence with just text and thinking about the kinds of stories that I hear every day. And those are very complementary. And they certainly enliven both. You know, I, I, I come from a day in the clinic really ready to sit down and think and write. And I come from a day of writing really ready and you know, keen to, to wade back into the, the humanity that, that flows through a clinic. And so the two for me are, rather than in opposition, they're more like um, uh, steps of a steady gait or, or two different supporting arms, really, of the way I'm trying to approach my life. That's fantastic. And thank you. Thank you so much for being with us, Gavin. And I hope that you'll join us again sometime. Yeah, thanks, Brandy. All the best. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Stay in touch by reading the journal or our blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We're also on Twitter at medhams underscore BMJ or find us on Facebook. 
Until next time.